Hi, this is Robin Bell, Manager of Community Outreach at the State College of Florida, and this is the Suncoast Culture Club Podcast. Welcome to the club. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all the cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. The Sun Coast Culture Club podcast is your weekly dose of what's happening in the performing and visual arts on Florida's Sun Coast, including interviews, reviews, discussions, behind-the-scene tidbits, and insider trading. Join State College of Florida Arts faculty as they bring you all of the arts happenings on the Sun Coast, from music to dance to art to theater. Come along and join the club. The Pops Orchestra has had an incredible season this year, one of which I'm very proud of, and one in which we have one final show to present called Come On, Get Happy, a tribute to Judy Garland on Sunday, March 26th and Monday, March 27th. And today I have invited our guest artist for that grand finale to join me on the podcast to talk to us about her life and her passion as an ethnomusicologist in the recreation of these Judy Garland orchestral arrangements. So Joan Ellison, welcome to the club. Hello, it's so lovely to be here. Now, Joan, a quick perusal of your massive bio tells us that you grew up in Iowa. You went to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music for your bachelor's and master's degree, and now you teach at the Cleveland Institute of Music. But take us back to those days in Iowa and tell us about the young Joan. How did this whole singing thing get started with you? Well, my earliest influence was the Wizard of Oz album, I'm dating myself now, that my parents got me. And really, Judy's rendition of Over the Rainbow was what made me want to become a singer. And I'm told that when I was two, I said, you know, when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up, I would say, either I want to be a chicken and lay eggs, I have no idea, but you know, two-year-olds, or I want to be a singer. So at least one of those career goals worked out. Were you in your church choir? Were you in like junior high, high school chorus? How did your singing pedagogy get started? Yes, I did all of those things. There were a lot of cultural opportunities growing up in Des Moines. I started private voice lessons when I was nine, which is a little bit younger than most people start. But my teacher, Eugene Wilson, shortly after I started taking lessons with him, he founded the Des Moines Children's Chorus, um, which has grown into a pretty big thing. So I was in the, you know, in the first class of that group and sang with them. I did musicals at school and then at the Des Moines Community Playhouse. I did an opera at Des Moines Metro Opera on the turn of the screw. I played Flora when I was 16. Um, so, you know, I, I, I took private voice lessons all, all along with various people there. And that was all before college. I studied piano as well with Cheryl Smith starting in kindergarten and basically all the way up through high school with her. 
It's a great skill to have as a singer to be able to play the piano. Were you ever asked to like a company for your high school chorus or anything like that? I did. I started doing statewide piano competitions, I think in about third grade. So I was a pretty serious pianist for a while. But yes, I, I accompanied church choir, the Matins Choir at Plymouth Church, and my high school choirs did all that stuff. And all this time you're learning and taking lessons and singing in choirs because you're classically trained and popular style, or do you differentiate between the two? Well, they are different styles. I was doing classical piano, but then, of course, I was sight-reading musicals and all kinds of things. And the vocal training, I, I was mostly working on musical theater and classical repertoire. Okay. And so when it comes time, you're graduating from high school, you're looking for college to go to, you decide you want to follow music as your career. What were some options you had and why did you land at Oberlin? Ah, well, I wanted to go somewhere that had really good academics and a music conservatory. So the options were somewhat limited at that time. I did look at Carnegie Mellon in their music theater program. So that was an option. You thought maybe you'd be on Broadway one day, kind of? Maybe. However, I had just, when I was applying for colleges, I had just done the turn of the screw with the Des Moines Winter Opera. And I loved the experience. It was an amazing cast with soprano Lauren Flanagan and a Metropolitan Opera star named Kay Griffel. So it was it was a really wonderful experience. And I thought, oh, I want to do opera. So really, Oberlin was the place. And I was admitted pretty much right off the bat very early. And then that was that. So I didn't do a lot of auditions. And when you went to Oberlin, was there still a focus on piano or was it all singing from that point forward? Yeah, I studied with Robert McDonald, who now teaches at Juilliard. I think I was his worst student ever, probably, because I, I think I maybe was one of two secondary students he taught, and I didn't practice a lot. And I again, this is one of the regrets I have that I didn't take better advantage of such a wonderful teacher, but I did learn a lot from him. So I yes, I, I studied, I think, maybe three years with him, as well as voice with Dawn May. Yeah. Oh, and that that's a, one of my interesting questions, because when we normal people think about conservatory, you, you do think kind of a, well, you know, highbrow, hoity-toity education. So when you went there and you said, hey, I want to study popular style singing, were they open to that? No. No. <laughs> I didn't think so. No. Yeah. In fact, um, I had to kind of fight to get to do an all 20th century American senior recital. But if anything, even slightly smacked of musical theater, it was off the program. So it, it was really, you know, atonal. So I didn't do any pop music there. And now here you are teaching at the Cleveland Institute of Music and you teach popular singing, right? This is yes. your curriculum? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so how did your experience as a young undergrad student at Oberlin, how has that affected your teaching and, and what you do now at the Cleveland Institute of Music and how you approach these kids? Well, the interesting thing about Oberlin was they had a very science-based approach to vocal technique. And that has carried over. After college, I, I immediately went back to my first love, which was music theater, and then spent a few years in Minneapolis. And there was a wonderful teacher there named Leon Thurman, who wrote a book called Body, Mind and Voice. And he actually had a his studio was in a hospital and he did voice therapy as well. And I learned scientific belting technique from him. 
as well as many other tweaks. And I mean, he's a wonderful, wonderful pedagogue and, and is really into, you know, how do people learn new skills and how do we teach them? And it was really a, a terrific sort of graduate level. Yeah. Okay, you learned all this stuff. And, you know, of course, the breathing is the same, you know, but there are many other things that you do for pop singing that you absolutely don't do. It's very different than classical. So um, I, I would think breathing, yes, maybe diction. Does that hold over from classical to pop? No. Okay. <laughs> the awareness of that you can pronounce things differently does carry over. So like what you learn how to learn that, but then, you know, many things are very different. So it's interesting. You said when you left Overland, you went to Minnesota. So that was going to be one of my next questions. Take us down your professional timeline of places you have been and sung to get you where you are today. Well, I did, I did, I was music directing when I graduated. So I was doing a bit more of what you do, um, yeah. grabbing the baton and conducting the orchestra for shows because I could get paid to do that in Cleveland. Wait, you can um, get paid to do this? What? Yeah, you what? really can. <laughs> and at the time, I couldn't get paid to perform. So I was conducting and music directing. And then my husband and I moved to Minneapolis and we started performing. He was an actor, tap dancer. He was my tap dancing teacher, actually, um, and a colleague. I had music directed him. And we said, let's stop learning all this new music and just throwing it away after the show is over. Let's get a permanent repertoire and perform it. So we basically were doing classic American popular song from the, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And taking it, at, we started out, you know, $60 and I had to schlep my own audio equipment in three and a half inch heels to nursing homes. So we did a lot of that, just kind of getting the act going. This was in Minnesota. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then somehow you went back in Ohio. Yes. We wanted to buy a house and house prices were going up and up and up and you couldn't get a garage for a hundred thousand dollars. This was back in 2000, we moved back to Cleveland. And because of a friend, a director friend had moved back from New York and said, you know, an artist can afford a house here. And so we, we moved back and we kept performing. And also this director started the theater and we were both working there. At some point, I joined the Actors Union, Actors Equity. I was finally getting paid to do shows in Cleveland. And one thing led to another. And doing one of those shows, I was playing Julie Jordan in Carousel. And the Carl Topolo, the founder and conductor of the Cleveland Pops, happened to come see a show. And his wife, Shirley Morgenstern, who's the CEO. And they hired me to do my first Pops concert, which was opposite a Broadway star at Severance Hall. And that's how all of this got started with you singing with orchestras. Yep. In 2005, I think. Okay. You're almost 20 years in, 18 years into doing this. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So one of the things that I think the audience is going to be really interested at our performances with you is this relationship you have built with Judy Garland, honestly, right? And so take us back to the time when you said, here's all this great musical output. This needs to be reworked. We got to find these originals. And you sort of becoming this Judy Garland ethnomusicologist, as I would like to call it. How did all that happen, Joan? Performing with my husband, we were doing various shows that were basically set up like 
period radio shows. And in 2009, I finally bit the bullet and said, I've loved Judy Garland forever. We're going to do a Judy Garland show. It's now or never. And we were performing that at performing arts centers and theaters. And I decided to get my own arrangements because I loved singing with orchestras. I mean, that was my first influence was those MGM orchestrations on the Wizard of Oz album. And I thought, okay, let me commission 10 Judy Garland orchestrations that at least match the vocals that are similar to the orchestrations and see if I can get this going. And my parents helped me with that. I mean, it was a big undertaking. Paul Ferguson did the first arrangements for me. He's a wonderful trombonist here in town and arranger. And I was doing that. And then I had corresponded with Michael Feinstein on and off, you know, the singer, pianist, archivist. And I went to his concert at Blossom Music Center with the Cleveland Orchestra and met him afterwards. And I had just commissioned some more arrangements and I had just been wrestling with one of the, the, not from Paul Ferguson, but from another arranger. And a lot of the harmonies weren't correct. It was Come Rain or Come Shine, which we will be doing on this concert. And I mentioned to Michael that I had just been doing that because they knew I, I had been transcribing piano parts off recordings for our shows for years. That was sort of the gimmick that they would match the orchestrations. And he said, oh, I, I think I have that arrangement, the original arrangement. And of course, you could have picked me up off the floor. But within a few days, he had scanned the whole thing and sent me high quality copies. And I was restoring and it was a huge, I mean, I had restored a couple of orchestral arrangements before that, but it was a huge learning curve for me. I was a music ed master's student, so I did learn transpositions for saxophones at some point, but you know, it had been a while. <laughs> a monster in a, of itself there. Yes. And reading the handwritten scores and they're all scratched over and things are scratched out and taped over and pages are missing, parts are missing. Because Judy toured with these arrangements. So, I mean, you know, they may have been cut for something and then they put it back in and, you know, Come Rain or Come Shine is a bear. And I mean, that was the one I started with. And people might not realize this music, and I'm a real stickler for our music library for this reason. And when we make a change in an arrangement that I've done, I go back on the computer and I edit it and I reprint because. Oh, wow. Things. Yeah, yeah. I t take that time to do it, unfortunately. But it is a puzzle to put together. And I found it really interesting when I was reading. You, you have a wonderful blog. I was reading about what happened at MGM Grand in 1969 that kind of caused this kerfuffle with all of this missing music and we have this, but not this share with us that wonderful story. Well, not wonderful, tragic story. I guess. Tragic. The right yes. word. Yeah. Yeah. In around 1969, the new owner of MGM movies, the film company got rid of the entire musical archive. And a lot of it was used as landfill under the freeway in LA. Was it just taking up too much space? Yes, it takes up a lot of space. I mean, you know how much space these things take up. And, and it was years and years. So they basically saved the conductor scores, but not for everything necessarily, for all the shows. So it was like a four-staff conductor score, not the full you know, manuscript scores. And then threw away all the parts and the manuscripts and everything. And here we are, many, many, many decades later, putting these pieces back together so that our 
audiences can enjoy the original versions of this yes. music. Yeah. And, you know, people, they don't know when they're being short-sighted. I, I get that. No, uh, I mean, I don't know that even the arrangers knew they were creating such wonderful art at the time. Yeah, that's true. And the, I mean, we have some good arrangers right now living among us, but those back then and how they had to do it, handwriting everything without the use of technology, it's mind-blowing. Truly mind-blowing. And I've read about how fast, I believe it was Conrad Salinger, you know, who did the well, I know he did the trolley song arrangement, and I, I believe I'm thinking of the right person when I say that he usually tried to finish his work by noon. So he could, I mean, he was just incredibly fast. He would just write out part, you know, all out of his head. Now we could play them back on finale and we can say, oh, does this sound right? No, it was all in his head. And he'd just write, write out part after part and just be throwing it on the floor. Okay, next page, you know. Right, and, yeah, yeah. And then we just throw them away in 1969. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's truly remarkable what you've been doing. And through your efforts, we now have at our disposal for performances and rental and such. And so how did your relationship with the Judy Garland's Air Trust come in to play in all of this sequence? That was entirely through Michael, uh, Michael Feinstein, because he was a trustee at the time. And we should say, if people don't know, just listening to this, tell us how did he get to be a trustee of the... Judy Garland Ears Trust. Well, he's very good friends with Liza Minnelli, and that goes way back to his early days in L.A. And of course, he was uh, Ira Gershwin's assistant for several years. So, you know, he just knew everybody. He's a living link to this era of the music that I love and that he loves. And he's always been a really passionate preservationist. I mean, he has gone through, he'll tell you, has gone through trash heaps in LA to, to rescue music. You know, people will call him up and say, oh, the, I see some music by the curb, you know, and and so, I mean, thank goodness and that that he's been doing that for so long. Right. Pretty remarkable man. And you have a direct. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this show, obviously, that you've done, it, you're bringing to our audience, it's been years and years in the making, but what other doors has this opened for you? Have you been able to take this concept and move it along to some other projects? I am working on a new concert now called It's Magic, Joan Ellison Swings in High Fidelity, and it will include some garland arrangements that just don't fit into the show because there's so many of them that survive, but it'll include songs recorded by Rosemary Clooney, Lena Horne, Ella Fitzgerald, Doris Day, Gourmet, just really some of the greats. And these you will also be doing orchestral arrangements too, so you can take yes. the show on the road? Yes. Bring it to Sarasota one day? Love to. Yes. Premiering in September. One of the things I found remarkable about your arrangements that you've put together as, as a conductor and as someone that, you know, I'm a trumpet player. So I grew up in the band world and I played in jazz bands and I've conducted jazz bands. And, you know, the, the saxophone section, as we mentioned earlier, is its own unique entity and not in the traditional instrumentation of a symphony orchestra. And so when you're listening to these recordings and it was obvious to me, you know, we'd go back and listen to there are strings, but and there's brass, but there is a saxophone section. And so you had to find a unique way to recreate that saxophone sound within the orchestra. Tell me about that process and some decisions you had to make with that. Uh, well, 
Larry Blank, uh, arranger and music director, has has really been a mentor to me from the beginning, and he helped me de-sax "Come Rain or Come Shine." De-sax, and, I love that term. Yeah, and and just kind of walked me through. He would take my finale file and make some corrections on it and then send it back to me. And and so I could kind of see what he did, depending on what kind of sound you were going for. It makes for a tough play for some of the, the horn players. <laughs> yes, but, well, horn, French horn and saxophone are right in the same vocal range, but certainly different timbres. Yes. And, you know, when I look at the bassoon section with the pops and I'm like, you got to play this like a Barry saxophone. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, let me play the bassoon. You know, there's a little yes. mental leap they have to make to become yes. part of the jazz band and really yeah, have to, hard. Yeah. And they have to dirty it up a little bit too. <laughs> That's it. I like that. It's like, let's get some bump and grind going here on some of these days in the palace medley, you know, and it, that can be difficult for orchestral players, but usually they end up enjoying it. They do. And and I have to say the, the orchestra is doing a, a really great job on these arrangements. They're so well done. And immediately after the first rehearsal, they're like, wow, these are great arrangements. So the musicians know it from a performance standpoint and the audience is going to know it from the, the auditory standpoint, you know, just just hearing how great these are. And this show, Joan, is so much more than you coming to town to sing with the pops. I think our patrons will see and feel that. And I'm really completely honored to be a part of it. And I want to thank you for taking us along this wonderful ride with you. As people leave this Performance Arts Hall after our show with you, what do you think they're going to remember most about this two hours we're going to spend together? I hope that the wonderful artistry of Judy Garland comes across through her music. And one of the things I often hear after a performance is, Oh, I'm I'm gonna go home and watch all of Judy's movies now. <laughs> and and I love to hear that because I, I feel like there's been a bit of a cottage industry in trashing Judy or labeling her as a drug addict. Let's look at her artistry. Let's look at the joy she brought to this. And I think that that is what endures. It's absolutely awe-inspiring what she achieved in her lifetime over films and recordings and live performances. I mean, her artistic output was huge. And so much of it has become part of our cultural landscape. And I want to bring that back, her love for singing and all of that to the audience. And I, I hope it comes across. Oh, I am for certain that it will. Now, we do have one very odd connection to Judy Garland here in our Sarasota and Bradenton area. Were you a fan of the Renee Zellweger Judy show? I have not watched it yet. I've seen the trailers. It's not a part of her life that I like to revisit because I feel so close to Judy, even though I never met her and she died before I was born, but I feel so close to her that I don't like to go there. Sure. I probably should watch it, but I haven't been able to make myself do it yet. I have heard it's a sympathetic portrayal, however. Did you see it? I did. I did. And and I did enjoy it. And of course, understanding my dissertation, Joan, is on the history of rock music as a oh. like high school curriculum. And so the Beatles, but also Elvis. And so along those same lines, I can really respect what Elvis did and separate what he did to himself. Mm. 
right? And so I, I watched the Elvis movie as well. But what I want you to know, and this might inspire you to watch the Judy show after all, is Renee Zellweger's mother lives on Anna Maria Island. Really? Yes, I believe I'm correct about that. If not, I tend to make stuff up and people go, oh, that's right. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah. We, I, if I knew how to reach out to her to come to the show. <laughs> not me, no, I don't know. So yeah. Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood also live here. So Really? Yeah. Do they ever come to concerts? I don't know. I've never seen them at one. <laughs> Maybe incognito, however. That would be hard. That would That would be hard. Well, you know, everyone looks different in a hat and glasses. That's true. And those country music singers, they look different when they take their hats off. Oh, right. <laughs> so true. <laughs> well, listen, if you don't have your ticket to this show, you need to hurry. The second show is already sold out. And at the time of this recording, there are only about 200 seats left for our Riverview Performing Arts Show. These performances are on Sunday, March 26th at 3 p.m. at the Riverview Performing Arts Center in Sarasota, and Monday, March 27th at 7.30 p.m. at the SCF Neal Performing Arts Center in Bradenton. You can get your tickets at thepopsorchestra.org or by calling 941-926-7677. Joan, I want you to know we have dialed up a beautiful weekend for you when you come here to Paradise. There'll be no snow. There'll be no rain, only sunshine. And we absolutely cannot wait to perform this amazing collection of Judy Garland songs with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sounds brilliant, and I can't wait to sing with you all. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day for Get short troubles, come on, get happy. Chase your cares away. Hallelujah, get happy. Before the judgment day. Thanks for listening to the Sun Coast Culture Club podcast. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Sun Coast Culture Club. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. That helps a lot. But most importantly, head over to our website, suncoastcultureclub.com. While there, you can send us a message requesting we cover a certain person, organization, or event. And then you can choose the support tab to make a donation to the State College of Florida Foundation to help support the SCF arts education students and programs. You can also choose the Join the Club tab to make a donation directly to the podcast. And don't forget to check out our calendar of events page through the website to see all the arts happenings in Sarasota and Bradenton. Thank you for joining our club. Stay well. This has been Robin Bell.